Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And today we are talking about the new Security Horizon report from ASIAL. Uh, they'll correct me on the actual proper name for it in a minute. Um, but the report has been commissioned by ASIAL through the Australian Security Research Centre to look at where the security industry is going over the next five years and what we need to do to get there. Joining us on the podcast today, we have Brian DeCares, CEO of the Australian Security Industry Association Limited, Dr. Gavril Schneider, Senior Researcher and Director at the Australian Security Research Centre. We have Nicholas Martin, who is the current Chairman of the Forum of Australian Security Executives. And we have Cameron Smith, who is the Director of Security Licensing and Enforcement for SLED with New South Wales Police. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Actually, we'll start with you, Gav. You can kick off by telling us what is the Security 2025 report? So it's Australia's largest study into the security industry, where we looked at where the industry is at now and where we think the industry will be in 2025. Okay. And Brian, can I ask you why ASIAL commissioned the report? Well, given the size of the industry and the role it plays, what we wanted to try and establish was a, a roadmap for the future growth and development of the industry to build uh, the industry's capability and capacity. So to actually put down on paper uh, a roadmap that uh, providers can follow. Okay. And so, Gav, if I throw it back to you for a second, how was the research for the report conducted and what, what formed the basis for the findings of the report? So over a period of about six months, we did a triangulated research approach. So we, we sent out surveys and those surveys went out to both users of security services and providers of security services. We then set up and ran about eight focus groups, which were broad in scope. That included people like Cameron from regulators. It included law enforcement agency representatives, government representatives, small businesses, large businesses, and medium businesses. And we also looked at an interview segment with different providers. We then did about 18 individual interviews, okay, with you know, people like Nick and many other role players throughout the industry. Uh, and then we ran a really robust literature review, which is at the end of the report, you know, 30 plus different publications, and try to put that all together to give us a picture of firstly where we're at and secondly where we're going, but also to kind of understand different perspectives. And I think that was, we'll probably explore it through this interview. That was really fascinating to see the different perspectives. We're all talking about the same industry, but you know, between users, providers and regulators and international best practice, there's quite a few different perspectives. But to support Brian's point, you know, one of the things that was really impressive is how big and influential and critical the private security industry is to the functioning of Australia's economy as a whole. Yeah, and I think that's something that the industry has recognised for some time now. Now, there were a couple of key findings that came out of this report. And obviously, you know, for those people who want to read the report, you can go to www.asial.com.au, A-S-I-A-L.com.au, and you can get a copy of the report there. But it's a 100-page report, so we're not going to have time to go into every single nuance of the report on this series of podcasts. But I want to start with one of the first key recommendations that the report makes, which focuses on the need for uh, national licensing and standards and recognition across state borders. Uh, now, this is something that the industry has been struggling with for 
dare I say, the better part of 20 years. Um, so how is it that you think we're going to achieve that or that we might want to achieve that in the next five years? And Cameron, I'm going to be interested in your feedback on this coming from a regulator's point of view. But, you know, Gav and Brian, but perhaps starting with you, Gav, what are we going to do differently over the next few years that hasn't been done over the last 20 years? I think there's a few things to kind of highlight. And the first one was that no one party can be solely responsible for a professional robust security industry. And for too often, there's been this, oh, it's the regulator's fault. Oh, it's the buyer's fault. Oh, it's the supplier's fault. And one of the key things we found is actually, if we want to have this industry that is global best practice, it's not going to happen by one party doing one thing. So that's the first part. The second part, um, before I hand over to Brian, was that you know, there, were, there were vastly different agendas being driven by the different state regulators. And it was quite clear early on that it's kind of hard for them to get on the same page. And it was as a result of that that we suggested that potentially a federal structure like Home Affairs sets up a security industry coordination office to try and assist the states in getting on the same page because I think it's really hard for the individual states to do that. Yep. Brian? Your thoughts on the subject? I echo basically what Gav said. I mean, I think what it, what the report finds is that you need to have a coherent approach. Uh, an industry on its own can't achieve that. It really needs to bring all the parties. So certainly regulators have a role. End users have a significant role in helping to arrive at that destination. Uh, but I think we need to get on the same page and agree on the destination and then start working towards that destination because we've skirted around this uh, of this issue. I think we first put a position to the police ministers uh, a meeting back in 1996. Uh, uh, I think COEG flirted with the idea in the late uh, noughties in about 2008, 2009, uh, and we're still inching, I think, closer, but I think we need a coherent approach and it needs everybody to work together. So Cameron, obviously, as the Director of Security Licensing and Enforcement for New South Wales, you're intimately familiar with this. And this is probably a question that you get perhaps more so than any other, I would dare suggest. Um, what is it right now, to your mind, that's preventing this from happening? Because again, to repeat my earlier point, we seem to have struggled with this for almost two decades now. Is it achievable? And what do you feel needs to be done to move to the next stage? To be honest, I'm pretty um, pessimistic about the chances of it being achieved. Um, I think the way in which all states have reacted to the COVID pandemic um, has shown how difficult it is for uh, state and territories to align um, uh, with their um, I guess philosophies uh, and also their approaches to dealing with, um, with issues. You know, trying to get the states and territories to agree and stick to a national plan for COVID has, uh, as we all know, reading the, the media, been very difficult. And we've seen that in the security space. I mean, there's just completely different philosophies um, underlining these issues. I mean, I've been around, uh, involved in the regulation industry for 18 years now. So I, I was here through the whole COAG process, which um, Brian mentioned, and all states and territories agreed to a set of um, uh, guiding principles through that process. And Everyone, everyone said that they had implemented those principles, but they all did it in very different ways um, with varying degrees of effectiveness. Um, and I, I really don't know how we get to a national point of view. I understand 
industry's desire for it. I, I have a strong desire for it as well, um, but I just don't see it um, on the immediate horizon. Let me ask then, if the appetite were there at a federal level to make this happen, whether it be for things like a national security capability, surge capability for national events, surge capability in the event of a major attack or things like that, if, it, if there were an appetite at a federal level, is this something that the federal government, government can push through if they wanted to, or does it really have to come down to the individual states? Well... I'm not aware of any occupational licensing scheme that is administered um, federally or, or guided federally, as, uh, as the report suggests, with a coordination office. Um, probably the best precedent that I can think of is the way that the Commonwealth took over um, regulation of the vocational education and training industry. Um, yeah, VTAB in New South Wales and the equivalents were... Um, were abolished and replaced with the National ASQA, um, Australian Skills Quality Authority. So there is some precedent there um, where there's a clear need to be consistent in the regulatory approach across the country. Um, but there's no other precedents that I'm aware of. I mean, the, the, the Commonwealth Government considered it in terms of the establishment of a um, National Occupational Licensing Authority, um, which uh, very quickly folded when the states and territories couldn't agree on those harmonised standards. Okay. But before we move on to the next recommendation, there is one more question I want to ask you, Cameron, because I think this is something that comes up time and time again, and I know that you and I have discussed this before, and I think we need to try and do our best to put paid to it. This is not a revenue issue, am I correct? It's not like all the states are trying to protect this big pot of gold that they get out of security licensing and registration. You've explained to me before, this is actually a cost exercise for you you don't make money out of security licensing i'd be surprised if any jurisdiction is doing better than breaking even um i mean when we talk at, we look at the licensing fees yes if you only consider sleds costs um there's probably a slight profit but you incorporate you know all the indirect costs both within police and across governments um in in servicing the regulation you know take for example the the legal fees that go with us defending matters at courts and tribunals they're not covered in sleds budget. You add in all those and we'd be making a loss. So then building on this point, Gav, one of the next things that you mentioned in the report was the need for the creation of a security industry coordination office within the uh, Home Affairs Ministry to facilitate rather than direct achieving national regulatory reform. I mean, obviously some of the basis for this finding, I assume, was driven around the need for national licensing, but... What What is this office that you're talking of and how would that work? Obviously, there were limitations in how far we could go with the research. And those specific machinations would obviously have to be worked out by the government themselves. But bearing in mind, Home Affairs has the primary, primary responsibility for national security. It makes logical sense that something like this would sit there. And looking at legislation, for example, like the uh, security of critical infrastructure, coming through, it's been driven by home affairs and therefore is probably heavily reliant on the private security industry to make that sort of legislation actually work. So it's a logical footprint that, you know, between cybersecurity risk, physical security and critical infrastructure risk and the points you raised around surge capability, uh, it makes sense that there is a structure that drives the development capability and to a degree enforcement of standards. Okay, in a uniform way across the country. 
And without that, it's exceptionally difficult for you know, A providers, B users and C regulators to be able to drive an industry best practice forward. So Nicholas, can I throw it over to you for a second? Because the organization that you represent is security managers across some of the largest organizations in Australia, which means they have a national footprint. So they act in all states and territories. What sort of impact does this lack of nationally consistent regulation and licensing have on your organization and the organizations that you you know, are also part of phase and what would it mean for you as a user of security to have a nationally consistent approach to security licensing? Thanks, John. I re- as, I, as you mentioned, I represent about 50 chief security officers from a broad range of companies um, sitting across most of the, the known sectors. From a licensing point of view, it probably, it, it varies for different members. So if, if you think about a large um, retail chain or a large shopping centre operator or a large food distribution company. I won't name names, but you, you probably can figure that out for yourself. For them, they've got a large amount of um, security guards operating within their environment, and that this would be a challenge to manage the different requirements across their site. For other companies, it's probably no, it's not a problem at all. They've got very small footprints, very low um, utilisation of guarding services, so it's not a big deal. It actually, but then when you actually accumulate it up, then it starts to become more challenging when you're starting to look at awards that are associated with them. There might be um, the systems that you're putting in at your sites, which are connecting nationally. Then you have Gav talking about the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act. And that's probably, that's where I'd take this to and focus on because a lot of the directives in that, they're looking for uniform application of risk across the sites. They're not, they're not discerning between what capability you have in New South Wales and Queensland. They're just saying you need to understand the security risks that are associated with your business and you need to have mechanisms, processes, and then resources to mitigate those risks. So that's the challenge when you have different mechanisms, different ways of operating across different states, but you're being regulated and driven from a central point, a la critical infrastructure centre or the federal government through some of its, you know, um, security of critical infrastructure regulations. So that's that's the challenge for us. Um, not, not so much just the individual licensing of a guard at a site. So Brian, as the, the peak body for the Australian security industry, you know, there are going to be people sitting there looking at ASIL saying, well, clearly you're magic. Why haven't you made this happen yet? Um, you know, talk us through this and, and what ASIL's plan is to try and move this to the next step and, and what the industry can do to help ASIL do that. Because it seems, based on the findings of the report, that this is one of the key areas that really has to happen in order for us to take it to the next level. I think the challenge of uh, getting all the states to align is a little bit like herding cats. It's, uh, we get them all pretty close, but then one of them runs off somewhere else. So I think it is achievable. We've uh, achieved it with the getting national training competency standards. So that that took a bit of doing, but it got there in the end. So I think that the approach that um, that we are looking to take going forward is to is to try and draft up a, a national model security act, which would be hopefully applicable to all states and territories, like they've done in you know workers um, work health and safety and other areas. I think we, we you need to give some answers rather than just hope that the states all get. Uh, get a bolt of inspiration and, and come on board. So the idea is to try and provide a framework from which we can actually start a discussion and actually get a, de- you know, as, as I said before, to have a destination to say within the next three to five years, uh, we would like to get to this point because I think it is in, in the national interest to have a, a better skilled, uh, more professional, 
better respected industry, uh, it, it is in the interest of the national economy. So we've got to find a way to do it. Um, and certainly we can lead uh, as, as much as we can, but we need others to come on board and actually start advocating for, uh, I'm not sure we'll ever get to the point of having national a national license, but I think if we can get to national consistency, uh, that is a major step forward. Um, in getting to where we want to get to as an industry. And that just does not just apply to the protective security services side. It also applies to the, the technical electronic security sector and also the cyber security sector, which is, these are all areas that are going to uh, mushroom in the next uh, three to five years. And we need to address all those areas, not just the physical, the protective world, the virtual and the, and the, uh, the physical worlds are actually colliding now. So we need to, put in place uh, mechanisms to address those challenges. Yeah. But if we can get to a point of nationally consistent standards for training, then do we actually need a national license or is mutual recognition of licensing enough? Well, mutual recognition is only applies to individuals, not to, not to businesses. So uh, what we would like to see is consistent, uh, you know, compliance and enforcement across all jurisdictions and different jurisdictions, obviously the, licensing systems talking to each other so you have the movement and mobility of people but you want to know who those people are uh, because you want only appropriate people working within the industry professional people Uh, and I think that's where we have an issue at the moment where we have for example in some states where uh, student visa holders are allowed to work in others they're not Uh, and our view is pretty well known on that that we don't think they should but until we actually address that the issue of mutual recognition will continue to be a a bugbear. It's not going to happen until we actually get that consistency. So it's a we've got a chicken and the, chicken or the egg. We've, we've got to fix the the licensing requirements across jurisdictions before we can fix the the mutual recognition. Ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have time for in this episode. I would like to thank our panel, Brian, Gav, Nicholas, and Cameron. And uh, don't forget to join us for the next installment of this three-part series when we will discuss the need to increase the role of security professionals in corporate governance, as well as the importance of improving the industry's image. Uh, If you would like more podcasts like this one, there are plenty of them in the ASIAL Security Insider series. You can find them on Blurberry, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, iTunes and many other fantastic podcast places. And we will look forward to talking to you again next time. Thank you.